Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. I also have some good stuff in a blog that I started writing in, I guess, about two and a half years ago. And the name of that blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, uh, another crazy 24 hours in the college sports world. Today is Tuesday, July 27th, 2021. And yesterday I published a post on the breaking story regarding the new wave of conference realignment spurred by Texas and Oklahoma looking to join the SEC. And it appears that is a done deal, although the timing and the terms are not known yet. And no sooner had I pressed publish in my podcast software than I saw an article that had a statement from Oklahoma State University President Casey Shrum. And President Shrum is brand spanking new to Oklahoma State. She was hired on April 15th of 2021. And boy, is she getting a baptism by fire. It's like, welcome to the big leagues, President Shrum. And her statement was really direct. And I spoke yesterday about the timing of all of this. And So much of the initial reporting has suggested that all of the stakeholders appear to have been caught off guard by this, and that includes Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby, who I'm going to talk about here in just a minute, as well as the rest of the Big 12 membership and the NCAA and the rest of the Power Five and the sports media. ESPN's coverage suggests from its uh, initial articles on this important story that, boy, they had no idea this was coming. And when you look at President Trump's statement, and then you also look at some of the other articles that have come out recently, it looks like the timeline for these discussions between Texas and Oklahoma on the one hand and the SEC on the other may date back at least to a year ago. So let me just read this statement from President Shrum, and she says, Earlier today, OU delivered a document to the Big 12 Conference office which indicated that they will not renew their grant of media rights with the Big 12 following the 2024-25 season. This action was strategic, deliberate, and results from months of planning with the SEC. These conversations, which developed over a long period, are a clear breach of the Big 12 Conference bylaws and broke the decades-long bond of trust between our universities. It is difficult to understand how an Oklahoma institution of higher education would follow the University of Texas to the detriment of the state of Oklahoma. So President Shrum knows where her bread's buttered here, and it is big-time Southwest football, and the rivalry between the Oklahoma schools and the Texas schools is powerful. And then she goes on with the usual presidential speak about, well, we're paying attention to this and we're as strong as ever and we're committed to doing the right thing and all that stuff. But there are a couple of things that are interesting about that, not just this notion that these discussions date back well before any of the important events of the perfect storm played out in a way that the 
SEC could say, well, we're doing this because of name, image, and likeness. We're doing this because of Austin. When you press the timeline back into the summer of 2020, the Supreme Court hadn't even accepted the Austin case. In fact, the NCAA hadn't even committed to appealing the Austin case from the Ninth Circuit to the U.S. Supreme Court. And remember, in the summer of 2020, the Power Five were in lockstep with the NCAA, both in their litigation strategy in Austin, but more importantly, in the context of this new realignment craze. They were in lockstep with the NCAA in their Senate campaign to get these Iron Throne immunities and protections that, if granted, would have allowed the NCAA and the Power Five to do whatever the heck they wanted to do without fear of any repercussion or any fear of interference by federal courts or state legislatures. And I really haven't gotten to breaking down the timeline of 2019 and 2020. But in the summer of 2020, remember, the Power Five decided that they wanted to put a little more pressure on the Senate. And on May 23rd of 2020, the Power Five commissioners, all five of them, sent a joint letter to the leaders in the House and the Senate in which they laid out their case for these protections and immunities that included antitrust immunity. They included the preemption of state laws. It included the preservation of the student-athlete through a federal law that would prohibit athletes from being deemed employees of their universities. And they wanted all those things post-haste. They used the term, time is of the essence, and they offered a list of quote-unquote consensus principles that any ostensibly name, image, and likeness-related legislation would incorporate. And again, that was just a guise. The name, image, and likeness facade was nothing more than a guise to get in front of Congress these extraordinary protections and immunities that when you look at them and the language of the bills that were proposed in the Senate had very little to do with name, image, and likeness. And in fact, some of these federal protections were not couched in terms of nil at all and extended far beyond nil and would have protected the NCAA and the Power Five from any challenge to any of their amateurism-based compensation limits or any eligibility rules as defined by the NCAA. So you had this sense of unity, and this was the Power Five showing a little bit of independence from the NCAA, in, at least in the congressional campaign. And that makes the, the timing of this kind of back-channel discussion between the SEC and uh, Texas and Oklahoma, and also perhaps the ACC. As I mentioned yesterday, there were some news reports that the ACC, actually, I think this may have come from Jim Phillips, who's the, the new commissioner of the ACC, but he suggested that the ACC and the Texas and Oklahoma officials had been talking, or at least there was some interest in having discussions. And none of those initial reports really were in a time frame, but these other reports that are coming out that this really goes back at least a year, put a much different face on this. And the questions now are going to be, what did the key stakeholders know and when did they know it? Because again, this is being presented as this thing that just popped up and it caught everybody off guard. And the world of sports, given how insane it is, it's very difficult for me to believe that if the SEC had been seriously courting Texas and Oklahoma to steal them from the Big 12 at a time when the Power Five was presenting a unified front to Congress and to the United States Supreme Court, ultimately, that you would have people simply caught off guard. And so, you know, what the first question I have is where the hell is Bob Bowlesby 
on all this. And Bowlesby is the commissioner of the Big 12. He was brought in, I think, in 2012. And he really is a senior conference, Power Five conference commissioner, because there's been a lot of turnover. And I think that's another issue that hasn't gotten a lot of discussion here. And it could explain why the other Power Five conference commissioners and and the people who should be paying attention to this stuff really were asleep at the wheel because you had important turnover in the Big Ten. You had Kevin Warren being brought in to replace Jim Delaney, and that happened in January of 2020. And that's a huge leadership change because Delaney had been in that seat for a long time, and he really was the lead dog among the Power Five conference commissioners. And he did a hell of a job for the Big Ten, and the Big Ten's in great shape in large part because Delaney was really on the ball in protecting the conference interests. Then you had the Pac-12 with an important leadership change. And I talked about that in my episode on current events chaos back, I don't know, 10 episodes ago, maybe. And you had Larry Scott, who had been in the captain's chair for the Pac-12 for a long time. And I think that some Pac-12 interest, the university presidents didn't feel like Scott was really moving the ball forward in terms of revenue generation. And they were looking for a new guy. And they brought in this guy from Disney. (laughs) He was an entertainment guy with Disney. And, And I think that tells you a lot about where college sports is today. But then in the ACC, you had important turnover too. So you had John Swafford, who had been in the captain's chair there for a long, long time. And he was a great conference commissioner for the ACC. And he came out of the ACC culture. He's a Carolina guy. In fact, Jim Delaney is a Carolina guy. He played basketball at Carolina. Swafford was also a former UNC athlete, and he understood the ACC and its history and its climate and culture. And I think Swafford really did a good job. But he left, and then Jim Phillips comes in just a few months ago from uh, Northwestern. He was the AD at Northwestern. So you had all of this turnover. Even the SEC had made a fairly recent change. So you had Greg Sankey coming into that job maybe a couple years ago. But when you look at the mosaic of Power Five commissioners, you have three newbies. You have one fairly recent transition. And then you have Bob Bowlesby. Bob Bowlesby was a senior statesman among these Power Five commissioners. And if anyone was paying attention to the possibility of any intra-Power 5 split or power grabs or poaching, it should have been Bob Bowlesby. And I'll also say this, Bob Bowlesby was always ready with a, a glib quote, and he was at that very first hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee or Subcommittee of, Senate of Commerce on February 11th, 2020, in which the NCAA laid out the initial blueprint for their power grab at the federal level. And he was there, and you know, and he speaks in a statesmanlike way and has a lot of gray hair and he has a deep voice and an authoritative tone. And when Bob Bowlesby speaks, uh, people should listen. And in all these discussions right now, Bowlesby's not a player. And, and I just find that really interesting. But he's going to have some explaining to do, I believe, as this story unfolds, the timing becomes clear, and we get a sense of uh, what did people know and and when did they know it. And this could be a, a really big story in the central question of who is in control of college sports. And again, we assume that the Power Five were marching in lockstep into the next phase of college sports where the NCAA was going to have a diminished role. And when I look back on Mark Emmert's July 15th interview with a small group of reporters and his bold statements that we just need to 
to completely start from scratch and rethink the structure of college sports and deregulate and decentralize and send things back to the conferences and to the institutions, all this stuff. That looks a lot different to me now because I find it very difficult to believe that Mark Emmert didn't know on July 15th of 2021 that this story was going to break and that this was going to result in a fundamental shift in the structure of big time college sports. And that explains not only that interview, but some of the ways since then that the NCAA has positioned itself. And I'm going to talk uh, more about that in a minute, because really the initial purpose of this episode was going to be to talk about how this new conference realignment impacts the relationship between the big time powerful football interests and the NCAA. There are a lot of factors to consider here that really aren't on the table because we've been sucked in to this immediate story on conference realignment. But before I go there, I want to talk just a little bit more about this important question of who the hell's in control here. I just want to say again, I've said this in prior episodes, when the Commission on College Basketball in uh, late 2017 and into 2018 was doing its work looking at this quote-unquote scandal in men's basketball, Dr. Rice on the backside of that came away I think with a pretty cynical view of how big time college sports operated and the fact that there was this in system finger pointing that was really endemic to the business model and perhaps important in the business model because there's never any accountability and you have these conflicts of interest, these massive just shocking conflicts of interest among the governing boards in the NCAA, the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors and all the crossover representation. And then you have the college presidents who are speaking out of both sides of their mouths and under the current NCAA constitution and on the backside of this aggressive wave in the 1990s for presidential control and, and, and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics, where the hell are the presidents? President Trump's statement yesterday is really an interesting insight into that because she's not talking about the integrity of higher education and she's not really even talking about the integrity of college sports. She's talking about getting screwed by Texas, Oklahoma, and the SEC. That's the starting point because that's really where we are in the 21st century. And the big time university presidents that are in the big time college sports sweepstakes aren't even speaking the language of academic integrity. And I had said a few episodes ago in the context of this possible deregulation and decentralization of big time college sports, that this might be an opportunity for university presidents to really uh, reassess whether we should renew the, the debate about academic integrity and the fit between big time college sports and the mission of higher education. That's not going to happen because the presidents are in so, so deep. And remember, it was the presidents of the University of Texas in Oklahoma that were in these discussions with the SEC and, and the SEC's commissioner, Greg Sankey. So the presidents are front and center in creating the very problems they will turn around and say exist outside of their control. And this goes to the fundamental hypocrisy of presidential leadership and control of intercollegiate athletics. And it proves Walter Byers' point. I mentioned in that 1995 expose that he wrote 
that was titled Unsportsmanlike Conduct, the Exploitation of College Athletes. I think that was the subtitle. But he just said, to hell with the presidents. All this chest pounding is just a, a big masquerade. And they are in on the scam and they are up to their eyeballs in all of the elements of big time college sports that they consistently rail against. So the presidents are in on the scam, but they want plausible deniability when they get caught with their pants down, which is exactly what's happening here with the rest of the Big 12. But the failure of leadership here at the conference commissioner level is just really shocking to me. And you would think that these conference commissioners would be mindful of the history of the tensions that have existed going back to the 1950s in the relationships between the powerful football interests and the rest of college sports, and then the infighting within the powerful football interests that reached uh, Hatfield and McCoy-like proportions, particularly leading up to Board of Regents and then immediately after Board of Regents. But as I was reading President Shrum's statement I'm just asking myself, what kind of conversations is she having with Bob Bowlesby? And in my episode on Big Ten Secrets, when I looked at the Big Ten's attempt to move their fall football decisions into a forum where those discussions wouldn't be subject to public records requests, I talked about the extent to which I believe that the university presidents and the Power Five conferences were deferring to the conference commissioners who've been making an absurd amount of money. And in that chart that I talked about in the last episode that talked about conference revenues. It also includes the increase in the salaries of the conference commissioners. It's astronomical, just unbelievable. So I went back and looked at the Power Five conference commissioners' salaries. They're just eye-popping. So I want to just go through them real quick. I, I pulled the 2020 Form 990 tax returns. That's for the tax year ending in June of uh, 2020, and it's actually for the full tax year of 2019. But uh, I'm going to go from top to bottom. And remember, in the Big Ten, you had Delaney, who had been around a long time, and his salary reflects that. And then it looks like he got a nice little golden parachute. I don't know if that's going to continue going forward. But for this transition year from Delaney to Warren, and again, Warren took over on January 2nd of 2020, so it's the middle of this tax year. Delaney made $5,556,000 in organizational compensation. Then he received another $3 million in quote-unquote other compensation. So that's $8.5 million that Jim Delaney got in the 2019 tax year. Warren, for his six months of work in the 2020 cycle, he made $1,183,000 in organizational compensation and about $166,000 in other compensation. So for that single year, the Big Ten paid nearly $10 million in conference commissioner's salary. That's a big number. That's <laughs> a really big number. And I think it reflects the importance that conference commissioners have assumed relative to the rest of the decision makers in big-time college sports. And remember, these university presidents are setting these salaries because for most conferences, they sit on the board of directors of the independent conference entities. So you got Delaney at the top of the heap. And then, let's see, Larry Scott at the Pac-12 made $4,620,000. And 
he was on his way out because I believe the Pac-12 presidents didn't think he was getting the job done. But that's just an enormous amount of money. And then you have the Big 12 and Bob Bowlesby. And in that 2019 tax year that ended in June of 2020, Big Bob Bowlesby, or maybe I should say bewildered Bob Bowlesby, made $4,392,000. And that includes his deferred uh, compensation. So uh, that's a pretty nice salary. That's a really big number. And then you had in the ACC, John Swafford, who was on his way out. In that same tax year, he made $4,038,000. So he's just over $4 bucks. And then seeing them all in fifth place is Greg Sankey of the SEC. And in that same tax year, he made just under $3 million. He made $2,933,000. So he actually is well below the rest of these conference commissioners, and he just ate their lunch, or he certainly just ate the Big 12's lunch. So maybe Commissioner Sankey's due for a nice pay raise when his contract is up for renegotiation. Because if this thing plays out the way I think it's going to play out, It's, again, the SEC and the Southern School Mavericks, the big-time powerful football schools in the South, forcing their way into the next structural change in big-time college sports, and they are going big. Whatever you think of the SEC maybe betraying the rest of the Power Five, I think there's another way to look at it here, and that is when you look historically— at this tension that's always existed and the inherently precarious nature of the financial uh, interests and this mad desire, this American desire to be the best and to have the best and to compete at the highest level and to win at the highest level. Those dynamics are driving these decisions and it's a constant low burn that influences almost every decision in college sports. And you have to believe that you need to look over your shoulder and wonder what the hell the other guy's doing or what he's thinking. This isn't a new dynamic. This has been percolating for almost 70 years now, and it's becoming more and more refined, and we're seeing the next shakeout here. But instead of pointing the finger at the SEC and at Greg Sankey, or even at the presidents of the University of Texas and Oklahoma, I think you could look at this another way and say, wait a minute, Sankey's doing what's best for his conference. That's his job. He's hired by the Southeastern Conference. He's not hired by a power five interest that floats over the five conferences because that doesn't exist. They have coordinated their interests where they align. And they've done that very effectively in attaining control over governance in the NCAA. And this autonomy power grab in 2013, 2014 is a really good example of that. And they've been very successful competing out in the market against each other in a way that everybody kind of wins for the most part. And they have been successful, I think, in unifying their voice in federal litigation, in the Austin suit in particular, and then in this congressional attempt to claim the iron throne of college sports regulation. So there is this illusion of unity, but beneath that is a history of betrayal. (laughs) And Greg Sankey is simply doing what he is paid to do. And when you look at these salaries, he's not being paid nearly enough. He should be at the top of that list, not at the bottom. 
So I, I just don't understand this sour grapes response and this finger pointing, although it's predictable. Again, in the first round of conference realignment that began really in the 1990s as the CFA fell apart and extended into about 2012-2014, you had the same finger pointing. And I, I remember when Baylor was about to lose their chair in the, this grand game of musical chairs, then president, uh, Baylor president, Ken Starr, was pointing the finger at people who he thought was betraying him, and they were threatening litigation and all this stuff. You're, you're seeing some of the same thing, and President Trump's statement is in that mold. And there's going to be more of that as the dominoes start to fall, and you're going to have all kinds of screaming and yelling and moaning and whining. But ultimately, on the backside of this, the people who are at the top of the heap are the people who acted big, acted bold, and they pursued quintessentially American values, and that is to be on top, baby, Top dog, A1. And that's what the SEC is doing. And here's the other thing I would say about Sankey's moves here. The SEC, I really believe, is at the top of the heap and has been at the top of the heap from a football standpoint for a long, long time. And there is nothing like... Uh, SEC football. It just I, I haven't really experienced a Big Ten football environment. I've experienced the SEC environment in my time at the University of Georgia. But I find it difficult to believe that there is another culture in college football that matches the SEC. And it's more than a game. It's just more than a game. And the thing that I like about what Sankey is doing here is that he is not satisfied to be the best right now. He wants to be better. And that is why the SEC is at the top of their game. So instead of criticizing him because he's doing it better than you are, you need to get off your butt if you're another Power Five conference commissioner and do what's best for your conference. And if on the backside of this, there's some uh, chaos and some uncertainty and some people have wounded feelings and they find themselves at the bottom of the hill, so be it. That's life in the fast lane. And that's life in the fast lane in the United States of America. And it's part of what makes this country great. So again, you have these dynamics, these quintessentially American dynamics playing out in some of this maneuvering. And this ties back into some of the initial principles that I brought into my writing and into the podcast. And that is that the existing business model on the business side, and this goes into Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and his statement that amateurism defines the participant, not the enterprise. But on the enterprise side, and this is the enterprise side, you're seeing rough and tumble, bare knuckled American free competition at work here. And I just find that incredibly ironic ironic that when it comes to the labor practices, the same interests are acting in a decidedly un-American way with all these compensation limits. And again, I think the unanimity in the Supreme Court's decision really was a, an exclamation point on that hypocrisy. But we'll see how it all plays out. And I'm going on some just initial gut reactions. But I think that when all is said and done, if the SEC winds up consolidating its power and enhancing its overall product, and then if the ACC starts to fall apart and the SEC picks off a couple of Florida schools, and if it can get Clemson, then boy, that would be a huge get, then the SEC in 10 years is just going to be viewed as the top dog, and they should be. <laughs> then you have to ask yourself, where was Swafford? And, and Phillips walked into this, but it's a really, really interesting dynamic. And I think what you see are some decision makers at the highest level. Bowlesby is a good example of this. I think he was fat, happy, and content and operated under the profound misapprehension that the Power Five were in perfect agreement and were moving forward in perfect unity and perfect harmony. 
And that would be an easy trap to fall into when, you know, you're writing joint letters to Congress and you're lockstep in your litigation strategy in a case that could change the future of college sports. But it is completely outside of the history of these relationships and it's outside of the instincts of the competitors within the power five. So yeah, I wanted to point that out because I think that as this is being spun, and again, we don't know who knew what and when they knew it, and that's all going to reveal itself. But I just don't believe that this movement really was related directly to the name, image, and likeness debate or to the outcome in the Austin suit or to any of these other external factors that it's easy to point to and say, well, this was the reason now or that was the reason. No, the the answer here is in history. It's in prior behavior, and it's in the notion that past is prologue, and that's where we are right now. So what does it mean now for the NCAA? That is a really important issue here because I think part of this storyline and this new wave of conference realignment, whatever it winds up looking like, is built around the assumption that the NCAA is dead, that the NCAA is not a power player, and that in this new wave of realignment, the NCAA doesn't really have a role. And I'm not sure that's the case. So I think we have to step back a little bit and put on our reality glasses here. As much as I would like to say that the NCAA is done, I want it to be done because it is a corrupt organization. And I think it is being exposed in these perfect storm events that are playing out right now as really an empty suit. And the NCAA has been doing the bidding for big time, powerful football interests in order to have their cooperation in retaining the March Madness contract. That's the NCAA's consolation prize after Board of Regents. And that's what they, I think, are playing to right now. And they're repositioning. I believe they're repositioning to be relevant in the college basketball discussion, not really the college football discussion, because they haven't gotten a penny of money from college football since 1984. So this notion that the NCAA really has any skin in the game and what's happening here with Power 5 football is an illusion. And you have to remember that back during fall football, the NCAA just basically took itself out of the game. The NCAA Board of Governors in its August 2020 meeting, they issued a statement that basically said, we're putting ourselves on administrative leave because there's so many things happening here. We don't know what's going to happen and we don't have any control over it. So we're going to press pause for up to two years. That's something that people haven't talked about. And I wrote about that in my blog. And I talked in detail about that August 4th statement that came out of that meeting. And it was significant because that was at a time when the fall football decisions were being made, when the uncertainty of COVID was at its apex and the NCAA's lack of power and control over big time football was so painfully obvious there. And nobody was talking about it on those terms. Mark Emmert, he would just bump and run on the fact that the NCAA doesn't have any control over football championships. What he should have said is, we have no control over this product. We don't own it. We don't have anything to do with it. And this product operates completely outside of the NCAA for all intents and purposes, except to the extent that the Power Five are technically NCAA members. That's it. But one of the central questions, I think, that will come out of this new uh, realignment craze is whether any new products on the backside will officially and formally separate from the NCAA. And that's a big issue. And 
despite the appearance of separation and despite the fact that the Power Five have really operated autonomously outside of the NCAA, at least with respect to their football interests, which drive the entire college sports marketplace, there is still some incentive for whatever product exists on the backside to operate under the NCAA umbrella. And in my third episode on the prisoner's dilemma, I really looked at what the NCAA had to gain or lose if it turned on the Power Five and what the Power Five had to gain or lose if it turned on the NCAA. And I was looking at those as really the only two interests. I wasn't analyzing it in terms of the Power Five turning on each other, but some of the same issues present themselves. So on the backside, let's say we have three conferences, three major conferences. You have this mega Southern football conference, then you have the Big Ten and maybe a beefed up Big Ten and a beefed up Pac-12. If you have that, how are they going to organize themselves? Are they going to be an independent corporation outside of the NCAA? If so, what's that entity going to look like? Is it going to be for-profit? Is it going to try to be non-profit? Is it going to try to operate under principles of amateurism? And these issues are really important because you have to understand that the issues as they've been framed, both in federal courts and in Congress, are built around the assumption that the National Collegiate Athletic Association is the primary regulatory authority in college sports and that college sports will continue to operate under an amateurism-based model. And even though the Supreme Court delivered a blow to that, at least a symbolic blow, they didn't strike down amateurism. They weren't presented with that issue. And I, I talked at length about that in the episodes leading up to Austin and then immediately after Austin. So this discussion is going to talk about this basic relationship between powerful football and the NCAA, but it's also important to fold in what the campaign in the Senate is going to look like going forward. And I want to press rewind back into late 2019 when the NCAA, through its working group and through its stealth lobbying in the Senate, was preparing this imperial march through the Senate to get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities that, if granted, would have basically been the end of the athletes' rights movement. And as that was taking shape and as the NCAA was really putting together its lobbying campaign, its stealth lobbying campaign that really wasn't disclosed until April of 2020 when the working group issued its final report. There were discussions behind the scenes among the Power Five, excluding the NCAA, private discussions among the Power Five saying, do we really want to be putting the NCAA in charge of this? And we have some important interests here and they're different from the rest of the college sports. And, you know, I talked about that in a prior episode. And I want to just mention a couple of the themes, the broad themes that came out of that. And there was this meeting on December 10th of 2019, really at the kind of the beginning wave of the NCAA's full court press in the Senate. And you had the five Power Five uh, conference commissioners. You had university presidents from all five conferences. And this was a private meeting and it was a boys club meeting and let's see I can't remember exactly how many people I think there were 15 people total all men mostly white men <laughs> 12 of the 15 white men and this was really the the back room people wonder well, what happens in these back room discussions and these off the record conference room meetings well this is evidence of that and this made it into the public domain I think against the power five's wishes but in this meeting the 
Power Five were basically strategizing on how the Power Five as a unified group were going to position themselves in the public and in the Senate and also in federal courts. And so they were in pretty good agreement that they wanted to be in harmony with the NCAA and their antitrust defense issues. And they were, I think, referring to Austin there. Then they talk about the legislative side of the equation there. And there were some just open concerns about Mark Emmert's leadership and his ability to navigate the interests of the Power Five through the legislative process. So there was a, a theme that developed in this meeting that there, there needed to be the appearance of unity. Unity was so important, and they didn't want to come out and criticize the NCAA or act in a way that would suggest to the Senate that there was any dissension within the ranks. They offered that up time and time again, and basically their messaging policy, and it's talked a lot about messaging at this meeting. How is our message going to be received, and what is the best message? And they concluded, and this goes back to this prisoner's dilemma thing, do the prisoners cooperate or do they turn on each other? In, in this legislative campaign, the Power Five decided that it was best to cooperate. And even if they didn't fully trust the NCAA and Mark Emmert's leadership, they understood that a unified front was the best chance they had to get what they wanted from the Senate. And they were going to engage in their own independent lobbying efforts. Some of these Power Five conferences, while the NCAA is spending all this money on Brownstein Hyatt and engaging in this grand lobbying campaign behind closed doors, some of these Power Five conferences were hiring their own lobbyists outside of the NCAA. And at the same time, I think beginning to recognize that outside of formal lobbying, that the Power Five, because of the products that are in it, not these powerful state schools and 34 of the nation's flagship state universities, that the Power Five schools in and of themselves had a lobbying presence, really, that was more effective than anything they could buy in Washington. So they were thinking about these direct lines from the institutions and, and the conferences to senators who represent states that those schools were in. And we don't know how that's going to play out yet. But the thing that I find really interesting about the timing of this announcement on Texas and Oklahoma, and, and now all this finger pointing. So this is now a public fight. The, the Power Five can't put that genie back in the bottle. And they can't go to the Senate now with a unified voice. And I think that's going to be a real problem, both for the Power Five interests and also for the NCAA. And I think that those two interests still want preemption. This thing in the Senate has boiled down to one issue, preemption. And I'm not going to say I told you so, but I've been saying this for two years now, that when push came to shove, what the NCAA and Power Five really wanted was to get state legislatures out of the regulatory field. And the antitrust issues are not as clear cut, even after the Austin decision, as I think a lot of people want to uh, make them. And this notion that athletes can't be employees of their universities is also something that needs to be dealt with at the federal level if you're the NCAA and the Power Five. So on all of the things that the NCAA and Power Five originally wanted before this public infighting, 
that broke just in the last two weeks, you have a really convergence of interests, and they're really important interests. But I just wonder now, when the NCAA and Power Five go back to the Senate, what that's going to look like, because all these concerns that are outlined in this December memo about the consequences of the appearance of a lack of unity and how that will complicate and make much more difficult the ability of the NCAA and the Power Five to get what they want from the Senate. And I think under these circumstances now, what you're going to get from a lot of senators, and this may be across the board politically, but I think what you're going to hear from a lot of senators is, wait a minute, we're in the most transformative phase in the history of college sports. We don't know what it's going to look like. And everybody commenting on it, including lifelong insiders and experts are saying, who the hell knows? It's, it's impossible to predict. And not knowing what that's going to look like or whether the big time powerful football interests are even going to be in the NCAA it makes it impossible for us to offer any blanket federal protections in a market that is this unstable. And that is a fair observation. And now the NCAA and the Power Five are going to have to explain that away. And I just want to talk about some of these provisions that are under the umbrella of quote-unquote name, image, and likeness, but are really driven to either explicitly promoting the NCAA's request for the Iron Throne and all these three things that they want, antitrust immunity and preemption, and then athletes can't be employees. And all of the bills that have been proposed in the United States Congress, both uh, in the House, but I'm mostly talking about those in the Senate, and there have been a number of bills that have come out there. And there have been no hearings held in the House, uh, only in the Senate. And there have been six hearings since February of 2020. But in all of those bills, the definition section is so important because those de definitions determine the coverage of the act, what's included, what's uh, excluded. And sometimes people just gloss over those, but those are some of the most important provisions in these laws. And in the way that these laws look at the entities that are involved in the regulation of big-time college sports, there are three assumptions built in. One is that the regulation is at the national level, not at the regional level, not at the conference level, not at the individual school level, but a national association. And most of those bills also specifically define national association to include the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And you have to look at the specific language of each one. But it has always looked to me like these bills were designed specifically under the assumption that the NCAA was going to be the sole regulatory authority in college sports. And then the other thing that all these definitions include is that this national association, namely the NCAA, is a nonprofit organization that is regulating amateur sports. So those three requirements are really important because you have to meet those definitions in order to avail yourself of the benefits of those laws. The preemption benefit, the antitrust benefit, the athletes can't be employees benefit. That's why it's really important to look at what any new entity might look like and whether or not it's under the umbrella of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Because if the Power Five is in the midst of a reshuffling that will result in a regionalized product that can't pass muster as a nonprofit organization and can't really argue that it's regulating at the national level and can't defend 
any compensation limits as amateurism based, then they may not be able to avail themselves of the protections of laws like this unless they are rewritten. So I would say that if these new interests, let's say there are three mega alliances, that you, I don't even know if you call them conferences, but you have these three mega alliances and they go out and they're doing business only with the members of those alliances and doing it in a less than national level and outside of the amateurism-based model and in a professional model that may include collective bargaining, you're not included under these laws as currently drafted. You don't get the protection of these laws as currently drafted unless you stay under the NCAA umbrella. (laughs) Okay. And then the other option there, and this goes back to the extent to which I, these market players right now in the fog of realignment and the craze of realignment are really thinking about some of these uh, structural legal issues and what the consequences might be of this shakeout. But I think it would be a tough case for a new uh, alliance entity like the one that we may be headed towards to go to Congress and say, we should be included in these laws that provide protections for national athletics associations regulating amateur sports. That's going to be a tough sell. So their alternative there, and this is an interesting alternative, would be to do what the NFL did in 1961 with the passage of the Sports Broadcasting Act that allowed professional sports leagues, this this was driven by the NFL, but it includes all professional sports leagues, to band together to agree on a single relationship with media broadcast outlets and engage in collusive behavior that would otherwise expose them to antitrust liabilities. So the Sports Broadcasting Act is an antitrust immunity law that removes professional sports leagues from the reach of the Sherman Antitrust Act. But it is a professional sports league law, and it would be interesting to see if this new entity, if it couldn't pass muster as a nonprofit, amateurism-based national regulatory agency like the NCAA, would it fit into the Sports Broadcasting Act? Or, Or would it try to argue for some other new law that would give it essentially the same protections that professional sports get under the SBA. And that's where they may find themselves. And that's a big if, because if they don't get antitrust protection here and they go out into this market in a way that really exposes the truth of their business model, which is that they are a professional sports league at that level, then they're going to be subject to all kinds of potential antitrust liability from the have-nots. And just to gild that point, I want to read the definition of National Amateur Athletic Association from the federal law proposed by Jerry Moran, who is a Republican from Kansas, and he's on the Senate Commerce Committee, the committee that's going to really decide the future of college sports, I think. And he was a ringleader pushing NCAA interests early in this campaign in the Senate. And he actually presided over the very first hearing in February 11, 2020, because he chaired a subcommittee of commerce that heard this claims for federal intervention. But in February of 2021, a year later, and this is after the change in Congress, and this is after the U.S. Supreme Court has accepted the Austin case, but before it's heard oral argument, Moran introduced in the Senate 
Senate, the Amateur Athletics Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. And as that title suggests, it is directed to amateur athletes. And then it goes through its definitions. And again, some of the most important components of this entire law are contained in the definition section. And I've promised this several times. I really want to go through this Moran bill because it is bad news for the athletes. And I'll get to it at some point. In this structure that Moran put together, there would be a, a government corporation, which is a term of art, that would oversee all of this. And, and that's just really, I think, a disguise for NCAA control of the regulation of college sports. But just in terms of defining what a National Amateur Athletic Association is, here's what Moran's bill says. The term National Amateur Athletic Association means a not-for-profit corporation an association, or any other group organized in the United States that, one, sponsors or arranges amateur intercollegiate athletic competition between institutions of higher education and, not or, and, two, sets common rules, standards, procedures, and guidelines for amateur intercollegiate athletic competition. And then it has some inclusions in that definition. And the specific inclusion is the National Collegiate Athletic Association. So it says the term National Amateur Athletic Association includes the National Collegiate Athletic Association and each division and member conference of the National Collegiate Athletic Association or any other national amateur athletic association separately and collectively. And while that seems pretty broad, I don't think that in a new entity outside of the NCAA that has these alliances that are really in a professional football model meets the, the definition of a national amateur athletic association here. So the, the, the safest approach for any new entity really would be to fly under the NCAA umbrella for cynical purposes, just to continue the lie that this is really an amateur product. But if this product is either purposefully designed to operate completely outside of the NCAA or is pushed outside of the NCAA, which is what should happen, but it hasn't happened because the NCAA national office is in bed with powerful football interests. So you still have some glue there. And the big-time powerful football interests have some incentive to be under the NCAA umbrella. And I think when we get to Congress, you know, there, there's been this question in my mind as I've been analyzing these issues in the campaign in the Senate as to who's really influencing senators here. Is it the NCAA through its sophisticated lobbying campaign that is run through a Brownstein-Hyatt? Or is it the Power Five interests that are increasingly run through the individual institutions in the states that uh, have Power Five schools? And the Power Five uh, senators that represent those states and those, those interests and those schools. And th that direct line, the Power Five line, I think is much more effective. And if you're just counting votes, that's the best way to get there. And that's another thing to consider here. In a streamlined new entity, how many votes do you get? <laughs> <laughs> out of that entity in the United States Senate. And do you have uh, reliable 51 votes there? That's an, another important consideration if this new entity can't pass the blush test as a national athletics association operating under amateurism-based principles. If you can't pass that threshold test, you're probably going to need some help from Congress, either to be brought into the uh, Sports Broadcasting Act or for some independent piece of legislation that's going to give you antitrust immunity.
And you need to have some political might built into that. And I, I think that probably will happen because you have these flagship state universities that are the core of these new alliances, however they are uh, defined. But it certainly narrows the pie here, and I think it's going to be a little bit trickier in, in the Senate. So going into this renewed debate, I'm going to be paying close attention to the comparative influence that the NCAA has and the Power Five has, even if they try to present a unified front. I think that's just going to be a, a difficult sell. But all of these are satellite issues that really go to the core of the feasibility of this new enterprise and what the risks are. I think in this initial power grab, if Sankey thought and the SEC thought they could just pluck Texas and Oklahoma, and then the Big 12 sort of remains in the fold, but isn't that influential. And then we go on business as usual under the NCAA umbrella, or, or, and, and then maybe within the NCAA umbrella, a further separation, like a, an entirely separate division. And there have been discussions about that in the past. But if that's what he was thinking, then just poaching those two schools isn't as consequential in, in the context of these big picture issues and, and what the new entities would need from Congress. But if this does mark the beginning of some big dominoes that are going to fall, then these other issues, the, the unintended consequences of this, the unintended detrimental consequences of this could be really huge. And it's just not clear to me from the comments that I've seen and the people who are talking about the next move that they're really thinking about this. That this is front and center and that they have really thought through all of the potential implications of this realignment. And on that point, I just want to say a couple of things about the way it looks to me like the NCAA is positioning itself. And when I was away on vacation last week, I was able to get internet access at a restaurant that I was at. And so I checked in on some things and I went to the NCAA website and, and I didn't recognize it. And the reason I didn't recognize it is because it is brand spanking new. I don't know the exact day that they did it, but it was last week, July 21st or 22nd. It, it looked like it launched. I just want to talk about that for a second, because I think it's a tell, it's a poker tell about what the NCAA is trying to do and how, at least from a public relations standpoint, they're trying to position themselves when I think most people view them as uh, being in a position of weakness, a really profound weakness relative to the rest of the college sports marketplace. But this website, this new NCAA website is just a piece of work. So it looks like the NCAA is partnered with a new company for its website design. And the name of the company is Sidearm Sports. And they are a, a division of Learfield IMG College Sports. And Learfield IMG is perhaps the largest and really a monolithic market actor in big time college sports. And they do all the marketing and branding and data collection and positioning. And they issue licenses through the college licensing company. And that may sound familiar because they were defendants in this O'Bannon lawsuit because the CLC took the NCAA intellectual property and licensed it to EA Sports. And EA Sports produced all these basketball video games that had the identifiable material of uh, real college athletes. And, and that was a big uh, part of the lawsuit. 
but they're everywhere. And I think that they are involved with maybe 45 plus Power Five schools, most of the Power Five conferences, and with the NCAA, and then individual schools uh, across um, the country in every division. And they're just a very powerful player. And they do a really good job with their website. <laughs> this is a much, much better website just from a presentation standpoint than what the NCAA had before. And I think that speaks to where the NCAA's head is in terms of what it needs to do now because its image has taken a huge hit on the backside of its failure to get anything done on nil, either in the Senate or in the House, and its failure in Austin, and that was a self-inflicted wound. And that was a big one. That was a big one. But you go to the Gateway page, and in the old website, you had rotating pictures. You had the pep band, uh, university pep band, and you had a swimmer, and then you had some other athletes, and it was all about the athlete. It wasn't about the individual decision makers at the NCAA, and it, and it wasn't about Mark Emmert. But the NCAA is in a new space here because when you go to the Gateway page, the top half of it is filled with this really large and powerful image of a female track and field runners in a relay race. And the lead woman that you they really focus on, you see some blurred competitors in the background, but the lead woman with the baton in her hand is an African-American woman running for Texas A&M. And it looks like her team won that, that relay. But the messaging there is Tokyo 2020, Olympians made here. And again, this is just powerful messaging. And you have to look at this in terms of the, the visceral visual messaging and what we immediately process here. And this goes back to my discussion in my Independence Day episode on July 4th about the system one and system two thinking and how effective corporations are now and these big tech companies. And I talked about that in the context of this documentary, The Social Dilemma, and how good these companies are at manipulating us psychologically to come to a certain attitude and a feeling and a belief system. And it's this kind of messaging that, that works in that regard and that system one thinking that we're in for 98% of the time. We just take it in and we draw these associations and they stick and we trust them. But the, the message here is Olympians made here that without the NCAA, we wouldn't be participating in the Olympics. The NCAA is just responsible for this whole Olympic movement. It all runs through the beauty of amateur athletics, uh, amateur intercollegiate athletics. And it's really an interesting shift in marketing because it, it incorporates themes of nationalism, powerful themes of, of nationalism. So they're wrapping themselves up in a product that really doesn't have any direct link to college sports, I don't think, and trying to claim credit for that. And in the process, they're wrapping themselves in the American flag, which is just so ironic given the business model, which is based on the suppressed cost of labor that has a disproportionate impact on African-American men. And then below that, and this is where it gets really hard to swallow, there's a picture of Mark Emmert, and it is Mark Emmert. Again, this is on the Gateway page. This is clearly about propping up Mark Emmert as a leader and trying to change public opinion about who he is and what he stands for and his relationship to this wonderful enterprise of college sports. So in this picture... You see a smiling Emmert walking across some invisible surface, and he's dressed in a dark suit. He has his hands clasped, a fig leaf posture with his hands in, in front of his uh, waist, and left hand over right hand, visibly showing the wedding ring. And he's got a humble smile and a friendly visage. And then the background 
is light blue mixed in with dark blue, a hint of purple. And all of this was staged. This is a staged photo. This is not a candid shot. He's not walking across the stage to deliver the State of the Association speech. This was a planned staged shot. And it'd be interesting to know how many of those they had to take to get an image that uh, met their criteria. But that color scheme is uh, powerful in this System 1, System 2 way. And there's been a lot written in academic circles about the power of color and how we think, feel, and respond to images and external stimuli. And the blue theme is really important because the things that it tends to symbolize and what people associate with this color blue is competence and uh, high quality and a polished professional appearance and reliability and trust. Blue is the trust color. And if Mark Emmert ever needed a boost in the trust department and the reliability department and the competence department, it is right now. And he is blue, baby blue. And then this is purple. I'll talk about purple too. That suggests authority, sophistication, and power. So you, you have these qualities playing off against each other in the visual presentation that has you thinking, Emmert's a great guy. He's a, a strong guy, but he's humble because he's smiling and he, he wants everybody to know that he's a good guy and he's competent and he's reliable and he's powerful, but not in a, in a bad way. This is benevolent power and he is trustworthy. <laughs> That's the message here. Mark Emmert is trustworthy. And then I guess by implication, the NCAA and the NCAA National Office is trustworthy. And then across the top of the Gateway page, there are, let's see, five links. You have the NCAA, and you have all the association-wide stuff, but the home page, the Gateway page, has this picture, Mark Emmert, on the bottom half of it. And then for four of the remaining five links, so they have a link for student athletes, and, and that doesn't include this Emmert in your face. But then when you go to the Division One link, the Division Two link, the Division Three link, and the Media Center link, those four links, when you go to the homepage, there is Mark Emmert, the very same picture on five of the six main links from the gateway page of the website. And he's everywhere. That same image, it's everywhere. And so you can't avoid it. And that's not coincidental. That is purposeful. And the image here is taking attention away from the institution and they're trying to personalize it to Mark Emmert. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if this is just an attempt on Emmert's part to rehabilitate himself on the dime of the NCAA. And remember, all the money they're spending on this website comes from revenue generated by the Division I men's basketball tournament. So he's taking that money and he's using it to promote his personal brand here. And I, I just find that really uh, interesting. And there, there are also some memory hole issues here. And I haven't really done a, a complete thorough investigation of the site. So I guess I, I want to be somewhat cautious here. So I'll stick with what's obvious. In the old Media Center link, you got this uh, rolling list of all of the statements that were released by the NCAA propaganda machine and all these uh, people, this army of people they have there who uh, write these statements and, and these self-serving statements and proclamations and all this stuff. That has been streamlined. So 
When you go to the media center link now and, and you move away from Emmert right in your face. Oh, wait, I need to back up here. This is really important. <laughs> I can't believe I missed this. But beneath that picture of Emmert, and this is in every uh, place that you find this picture of Emmert, there is a tagline beneath it that says, Emmert continues push for change in college sports. Where did that come from? That was the headline that the NCAA national office uh, propagandists put on the NCAA website on July 15th, 2021, to promote this interview with a small group of reporters in which he tried to present himself as the visionary, as the agent of change in big-time college sports, when he is responsible for the fact that college sports was stuck in the early 20th century, and he refused to budge from that either in Congress or in federal courts. And now he's the agent of change. And so I talked about that in, uh, I think that was episode 40, I think. But you can go back and look at that. That was on the NCAA Ministry of Truth. And the Ministry of Truth was really working overtime with this new website as well, because they just wholesale deleted that string of references in the media center. And they replaced them with very select few number of entries. And so you have two pages of entries that go back to February of 2021, but there are only like, I don't know, 20 entries between February of 2021 and, and uh, the present. And the most recent one as of today was July 22nd, 2021. So last week. And when you go to what's left in the new format to this really truncated list of statements from the media center, they are in reverse chronological order. And that's how it's always been. So the most recent statement is the first thing you see, and then the next most recent, and then down from there in reverse chronological order. And what's interesting about the media page with this smiling face of Mark Emmert and the headline, Emmert continues push for change in college, continues push. At the, the, the first two entries are not in, in reverse chronological order. So the first entry is this July 15th, 2021 statement, which should be actually on the next page in reverse chronological order, but it is at the top of the list. It has a place of primacy, and that is purposeful, and primacy and recency are, are two powerful elements in persuasion, and it's the first thing you hear and the last thing you hear. And the NCAA wants the first thing and the last thing you hear to be about Mark Emmert continues push for change in college sports. And then the next entry is from June, is way out of reverse chronological order. And that is the day that the NCAA issued this ridiculous press release where it claims that it adopted interim name, image, and likeness policy as an act of uh, good faith and magnanimity and furtherance of athlete well-being. And so Amherst claiming uh, credit for that when he was the primary impediment to it. At every level, and I've talked about that, but the NCAA comes out with that statement on June 30th, seven hours and 40 minutes before midnight, which began in earnest the nil era and all these state laws that were passed in the wake of NCAA arrogance and incompetence. <laughs> because the NCAA, despite the way it's now characterizing that interim policy, it hasn't changed a single word of a single rule. And it says in all of its publicly available information, you have to dig deep. But when you go to the uh, minutes for the Division I Council and Division I Board of Directors and the Board of Governors, 
they're very careful to make it clear that this is an interim policy conditioned and dependent upon ultimately either actual nil rules changes within the NCAA or a federal bill that is going to basically allow the NCAA to do whatever the hell it wants to on nil without any repercussion or without any interference from states. But those two things are isolated at the very top of the timeline. (laughs) So again, that is all about Emmert. And they have an archive section. And because it's new, I'm not navigating it as as easily as I did the old website, which which was a train wreck, by the way. And again, I I think that this new company's done a a really good job from a presentation standpoint. But when you go to their archives, the most recent archive is 2013. So from, from 2014 to the present, there's, there's nothing easily accessible. I, I haven't looked to see if there's some other way that you could get a particular document from that seven-year period. But that covers the most consequential period in Mark Emmert's leadership and some of the most consequential events in the history of college sports. And there's nothing there. Press a button to a year and get any results. There's nothing there. And then they also have a timeline of college sports. And this was done by some guy, I guess they call him an NCAA historian. But, you know, along with the disappearance of the media center statements for seven years, (laughs) down the memory hole. Oh, God. You have this timeline, and it's done by decade. And there's some interesting stuff there. But again, this just goes to show you the Orwellian way that the NCAA views its positioning. And the things that it excludes are just stunning. Stunning. If, if you want to have an accurate portrayal of, of college sports going back to the 1950s, there's some things you just can't leave out in good faith. You just can't leave out. And I'm just going to go through some of these decade entries to tell you the things that the NCAA just <laughs> shoved down the memory hole. And the Ministry of Truth is doing its good work. But from the 1950s, If you understand the history of the NCAA, you understand that the 1950s were crucial in uh, setting the the basic terms of the relationship between the athletes and the institutions, and that's remained largely intact to the present. And that was the decade when Walter Byers became NCAA president. They mentioned that, but they say nothing about the invention of the student-athlete. This thing that the entire business model is built on isn't mentioned once. And and, and the context in which it came about wasn't mentioned. There's no mention that in 1956, the NCAA adopted the full athletic scholarship. Walter Byers said that was one of the three most important events in the history of college sports. That's inconvenient for the NCAA because it shines a light on this capitulation to pay for play. And the invention of the student athlete shows it as a sham. But you cannot do an honest timeline of college sports and leave those two things out. So there you go, down the memory hole. Then we get to the 1980s and in 18 words, I counted the words here, in 18 words, they talk about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Board of Regents. Now, Board of Regents is really in that top three, probably was number one when Walter Byers wrote that book. It remains to be seen if it'll stay there after what's happening right now. But it's in the top three. (laughs) It's probably at the top of the list. And it gets 18 words. Yeah. So I I don't know how you respond to that, honestly. Let's see. Then going into the 2000s, 
And this was uh, the, the first decade of the 2000s, and some really important things happened here that you simply can't ignore. And one was the creation of the concept of the collegiate model by Miles Brand in 2003, 2004. And there's nothing. It doesn't exist. The collegiate model and its origin and, and the context in which it came into the lexicon of big-time college sports, it, it's not there. And then this also was the decade that began the athlete wave of antitrust suits. And if you're doing an honest timeline, you have to acknowledge the importance of those lawsuits. So there is zero uh, reference or discussion or identification of the white suit in 2006. Then we come to 2009, and O'Bannon didn't happen. So this O'Bannon lawsuit, <laughs> which will go down in history, as one of the single most important events in the history of college sports because it, for the first time the NCAA was held accountable under antitrust laws for its compensation limits. That seminal case doesn't get a single word. How can that be? So there you have it. Uh, now, and then we go to this decade, 2010 to 2020. And I just want to make a couple of observations. Another of the most uh, important events in the history of college sports, I think, was the aggregation of the Power Five's power and then their exercise of that power to achieve autonomy status, which I think is the precursor to what's happening right now. And again, if you're doing an honest timeline about the truly significant events in the history of college sports, you have to talk about that. So there is this entry, and it's uh, very cryptic, and it talks about this August 7th, 2014 meeting of the Division I Board of Directors where the autonomy conference format was adopted. But here's what it says. The Division I Board of Directors restructures how schools and conferences govern themselves, paving the way for student-athletes to have a voice and a vote at every level of decision-making. The new structure leads to the creation of the Division I Council with seven committees reporting to it. So that is a, just a gross misrepresentation of the significance of that date and that Board of Directors meeting. That was the approval of the complete separation of the Power Five from the rest of the NCAA. It was like finally just cutting the cord, but still having them under the umbrella of the NCAA. And uh, let's see. And then I want to jump to 2021 because there are only a handful of entries here. So one, two, three, four, five, six entries in what may turn out to be one of the most consequential years in the history of college sports, and COVID just gets a quick brush off. And then the, they say regarding the Austin Supreme Court decision, June 21st, 2021, the timeline says the Supreme Court upholds a lower court decision that the NCAA can't limit education-related benefits that colleges can offer student-athletes. It's 22 words, and it doesn't capture the importance of the case. It's like, okay, we had to put this in, but we're going to characterize it in a way that uh, completely disguises its importance. And then for June 30th, 2021, it says... Uh, Governance bodies in all three NCAA divisions adopt a uniform interim policy suspending name, image, and likeness rules for all incoming and current students in all sports effective July 1st. So just looking at, at how they deal with these two seminal Supreme Court decisions, the Board of Regents decision and the Austin decision, where you get a total of 40 words, okay? And I just want to compare that with uh, something that they just throw in. This is important in the timeline. Between May 6th and 8th of 2016, you know what happened? Beach volleyball 
The 90th NCAA Championship begins play in Gulf Shores, Alabama. That entry says the sport was placed on the NCAA Emerging Sports for Women list in 2019 and reached championship status faster than any sport on the list. Southern California defeats Florida State 3-0 in the final duel to win the first NCAA Beach Volley Championship and begins the tradition of the national championship team jumping into the Gulf of Mexico. 70 words. (laughs) Beach Volleyball making it to the formal NCAA championship in 2016, gets twice the press coverage of two Supreme Court decisions combined (laughs) that are two of the most significant events in the history of college sports, and I would say in the history of American sports. And that's just the NCAA doing what it does best. What they've shoved down the memory hole here is just stunning. But that's how they have positioned themselves. And so what does that mean? What does that positioning mean? I think it means two things. One, this is an open acknowledgement that the NCAA's credibility is at an all-time low, and they are in desperation mode to try to bolster it. Why they're doing it through the persona of Mark Emmert is beyond me. But, you know, you have to remember the the Board of Governors is stuck with Emmert, and, and they can't fire him right now because that would be an admission that they really kept him on board for reasons uh, beyond his job performance. And remember that in April of 2021, just a few months ago, the uh, Board of Governors unanimously extended his contract into 2025. So what are you going to do? How are you going to try to uh, brand this thing? So maybe this is also positioning for the next round in Congress. And Mark Emmert's trying to come in with the new humble and uh, trustworthy look, because that sure as heck isn't how he's uh, behaved himself in Senate hearings since February of 2020 in my judgment. And and then the other thing is, I think he's trying to keep the NCAA relevant here in a way that suggests that it wants to be an actor in whatever this new sports marketplace is going to look like. And finally, I think this is all directed to one thing, and that is holding on to the March Madness money. Because if the NCAA and all these structural changes, if they can hold on to college basketball, and if the basketball interests can't convince the big-time football interests to make sure that that they're protected as well. And right now, I don't think the big-time basketball interests even have a seat at the table, much less uh, being in a position to dictate terms. But if the NCAA, maybe in some complicit deal with the Power 5 football interests, holds on to, to March Madness and they stay in that contract, which goes to 2032, the NCAA is sitting pretty, and they don't have to worry about dealing with the headaches of the big-time football and appeasing all their demands. They're just going to hold on to that money and be a watered-down NCAA. And I don't know if the powerful basketball interests are going to have a vehicle to really uh, fight back against that. And I don't know if they're going to be able to act autonomously or go into a separate division themselves. And, and they should because their value to the sports marketplace obviously isn't what football's is, but their value to the NCAA is everything. And they have enormous bargaining power with the NCAA because the NCAA is singularly dependent on March Madness revenue, its national offices, and this business model that runs through the NCAA national office and these salaries that are indefensible indefensible. So I think that's what the NCAA is positioning itself for. And they're just going now with a complete 
makeover on on the image they want to project. And it'll be real interesting to see if that has any influence. The media hasn't uh, really given much pushback on Emmert's propaganda. And I've talked about that. And again, that's just goes to how dysfunctional the media market is in the sports media and actually in the mainstream media when they're covering sports. And it's just a very cozy relationship and everybody's happy as long as everybody's making money. And the NCAA Mark Emmer just want to keep the gravy train rolling. That's what it's all about. So with that, I'm going to close this out and then I'm not sure what my next episode is. Every time I predict what it's going to be, something else happens and I wind up uh, calling an audible. But for now, I'm just going to close this out. Thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.